Hey everybody and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Hey, I'm Andrew's former high school philosophy teacher, Derek Memento Mori Parsons. And I'm still stuck in a veil of ignorance. I'm your host, Andrew Graziano. Oh man, poor Andrew. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4, which is uh, Episode 26, if you're keeping score at home. And for the first time this episode, we are answering your questions. We're very excited about that. Uh, I guess I should have saved my memento mori for when we do Stoicism following episodes. Anyway, how are you, Andrew? How's it going? I'm doing good. I am very excited for this episode. It's been a long time coming. People, people always ask me when they hear about the podcast. They always ask me some philosophy questions. So I'm, I'm really excited to have an entire episode just to talk about those. So that's very, very exciting. Other than that, I'm doing pretty well. It's been kind of miserable outside though for the past few days. So I, I think whenever I think I talked about this last year around this time, but whenever like the weather keeps switching back from cold to hot, I always get like a cold or something. Mm. So it's um that's okay other than that just getting through a uh, school it's kind of building up right now but um i think by the time this episode is yeah it shouldn't be too bad actually by the time this episode's out it won't be finals yet but it'll be looking forward to finals and that is not not a fun time <laughs> well uh, if nothing more monday is is march 1st and the promise of spring break is near yeah it has been pretty gross outside I won't lie, this week has been cloudy and cold and wet and yeah, just generally generally unfavorable weather for this time of year. We're, I think actually Tuesday night, the low is 34, so come on, come on spring, what is happening here? We <laughs> usually don't have lows near the near freezing at this point in the year, but hey, every year's, every year's a, a, new, a new year, you never know what's going to happen. Let's see what's going on in my life. Oh, yes. You remember last episode I said I was getting ready to be buried in research papers? Yes. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I am buried, my friend. <laughs> so many. As soon as this is over, it's uh, another pot of coffee and right back to it. So, Oh, no. For the first time, I don't know why these ideas come in my head. Uh, for the first <laughs> time, I thought I would calculate how many words I was going to read. What? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, each of these papers has a, a maximum word count. And so if, if students reach their maximum word count, which some go over and some are under, you know, whatever. But uh, if all students reach their maximum word count, the amount of words that I will read in, in the next week is 68,000, um, <laughs> which is like the length of a, you know, moderate novel. <laughs> yeah that that doesn't sound um particularly fun but maybe maybe it's an interesting time i'm sure there's some cool ideas anyway i digress <laughs> uh but yeah spring break is coming as well for me and looking forward to that all right everybody here we go we have our first question here this is from joseph Joseph asks, what thinker, idea, question, or problem got you into philosophy? That's from Joseph. Thank you for writing in, Joseph. Boy, uh, Joseph, man, thank you for the uh, the flexibility of <laughs> being able to answer that. Uh, a thinker, idea, question, or problem. What got you into philosophy, Andrew? That's a really great question. I'll give a two-part answer, but I think I've, I think I've maybe talked about the first one or the first part of my answer on the podcast a little bit, but definitely not the second one. When I was in high school, did debate, and I think that's when a lot of students get exposed to some type of philosophy. So I think that's kind of generally where I got exposed to it. I didn't really like it that much. I thought it was kind of dumb. And so that's that's honestly, I think that's where my hatred of non-practical <laughs> philosophy comes from. You know, I was looking at uh, Nick Bostrom's Do We Live in a Computer Simulation paper a few days ago, and it's just stuff like that. It's just so, so odd. That's where um, where I really grew a hatred for certain uh, fields of philosophy, but that's where, where I originally got into it. And I would say that where I got interested in it was probably... I think it was when we were actually in your class, Mr. Parsons, talking about personhood. 
Um, I thought that question was really interesting, thinking about ethics, who's worthy of moral consideration. And I thought it was a really important question. It was the first time that I thought philosophy was a practical subject and an important subject too, and probably also philosophy of religion. I thought that was an interesting topic, but I think personhood, it was the first time it's practical to me. Um, I saw a purpose in it. So I think that's where I got into philosophy. All right. No looking back since then, huh? (laughs) No looking back. (laughs) Cool. Well, so for me, my entry into philosophy was really long and slow from a variety of different perspectives, I think. I think the thing that really got me into what we would call like formal philosophy was questions related to religion and God. But, you know, from from when I was a teenager, I really enjoyed poetry and especially the poetry of the Romantics and then from the Victorian era. (laughs) And, you know, like a lot of teenagers, I had questions related to existence. What was the, the purpose of my life? Does life in and of itself have a purpose? What does it mean to be a, a human? And poetry explores a lot of those topics, especially the romantic poets, which is very much a sort of, I don't want to say anti-rationalistic movement, but in a way it, it was. It was a movement that came after what we call the age of reason. And I think still today, you know, a lot of my philosophical leanings come from that particular background where I do give a lot of credence to the importance of experience in philosophy. But as far as the problem goes, again, probably like a lot of people in their late teens, early 20s, I had lots of questions about God and who God was and what God was, what God was and how that was supposed to manifest in my life. I grew up in the church. Uh, and so I had that firm foundation and background and all of that. But, you know, as you grow older, you you learn more and you find contradictions and, uh, and, and you, you have to resolve those, you know, so the problem of evil is, is an easy one to pick on when it comes to religion. And so what began as just a, an exploration of those types of questions and problems morphed into studying the branch that we call philosophy of religion, and uh, then kind of combined with sort of my lifelong interest in questions related to experience and life and death and all of that, I'll just coalesce and boom, there you go, philosophy. That sounds like quite a ride. We're, I think we're, we're coming at philosophy in much different, but also very similar ways. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool. And I think a lot of people can probably resonate with at least some parts to both of our experiences too. Which is yeah, cool. you like me also grew up in religious household. Yes, yes, I did, I did. But I think this is something that I've thought about this a lot. Not the question about religion, but why I think I've never really had a big problem with my faith in a certain way. I think that's quite. I think it's lucky. I never really had problems thinking about is God real or not when I was at least when I was older. Older meaning like. 15 to present time. And so I I think I was pretty lucky about that. So I was more interested in not if God existed, but qualities of God. What was God like? Could humans know God? Since I did believe there was a God, um, why was there evil in the world? So I think I was probably coming at when I was thinking about, at least when I was thinking more about philosophy, I was thinking about God in a kind of theological Mm -hmm. way presuming God's existence and moving on that way. And that's something I'm still interested in too. I think we're both interested in that topic and that's a preview of coming attractions too. So yeah, uh, that's true. I think, I think we are both interested in that topic and yes, for, for listeners upcoming, uh, probably midsummer, I'm going to guess we are doing a series on philosophy of religion. And a lot of those questions we're talking about will be featured. Yeah. For me, like it was a, um, I needed to answer the question for myself do I believe that God exists? Yes or no? That was like <laughs> that was like the foundational question. And, and once I could determine that question or the answer to that question, I could then move forward with other questions related to God. But of course, in that journey, you, you do run into all kinds of topics, issues, questions that help you answer that question. 
And so, like you, I did wrestle with a lot of those, you know, what are the qualities and the traits of God? Is God omnipotent? Is God all all loving? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, probably everyone is just dying to know what my answer is to that question. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they'll have to wait. They'll have to wait to the philosophy of religion unit yeah. <laughs> series that we're going to do. <laughs> I was hoping that would be the answer so we could... Uh... Hook in some some people to that series, and I think that's going to be really good. So this is totally not a um, an advertisement for that. Uh, for, oh, for that series. I feel like it kind of has come become that. This is my you know cliffhanger <laughs> strategy here. You know, will people tune in to to find out the answer? It's like the end of of a season that ends on TV. You're like, what's going to happen? Will so and so live or die? Does Mr. Parsons believe in God? Yes or no? All right, moving on, moving on. Boy, I tell you what, though, it took me a long time to get to that answer. But our so our second question is from Grace from San Antonio. This is: Is it morally wrong to kill an insect? Is it morally wrong to kill an insect? Yes. Sorry, I cut you off. What do you think about it? So, taking the question as it is specifically stated. We are talking about a single insect. And I think that changes the argument. If we were talking about millions, perhaps billions, that would have an impact ecologically on our existence and the Earth's existence that would be traumatic versus a single insect is not going to change the ecology <laughs> of, of, of anywhere. So... That reorients the question to where we're talking specifically about like the morality taking a life of a living thing, which is what a what an insect is, right? It's a living thing. And we just finished up with the topic of consciousness. We did that couple episode series and then ended with Jack Symes last episode. We talk a lot about what it means to be conscious and what exactly is involved in consciousness. And so this is where I kind of land on whether or not it's morally right to to kill an insect, is it does come down to consciousness, I think. Does an insect have some sort of subjective experience? Yes, uh, it does. It doesn't have a subjective experience in the way that we have a subjective experience, nor does an insect, as far as we know, reflect on that experience. There's probably not a degree of self-awareness uh, with an insect. And we know that vertebrates have more sophisticated brains than invertebrates, which an insect is, I think. <laughs> it's my lack of biology. They have exoskeletons or something. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, is it, so to reorient the question a bit, we could also ask, is it morally right to kill a creature that is conscious. And there's some other things we could talk about there as well. It's like, you know, does the, well, if we're killing it, I guess it wouldn't experience pain. Although I think about like, so, you know, down here in Houston, well, probably a whole lot of places, we have wasps and yellow jackets and <laughs> things like that. And they build nests up in the top corner of your front porch or whatever. And like, you know, a whole bunch of them are swarming around and you worry about getting in without getting stung. So, you know, you get that, that spray and, uh, and, and you spray them and they all fall to the ground and they lie there twitching for, you know, 60 seconds or so. I'm like, is, you, is this insect suffering? You know, when you talk about morality and consciousness, you know, the ability to suffer or to experience suffering, you know, that's a part of it as well versus like swatting a mosquito at least we can say mercifully, their death is quick and without suffering. I don't know. I don't. I haven't answered anything. I've just brought up lots of questions. What do you think, Andrew? <laughs> I'm going to separate this question in a few ways. First, I think is it. Yeah, let's start with it this way. I think there's a there's a difference between an action being blameworthy and the action being morally wrong. So let's let me think of give an example of um, when it might be not blameworthy, but it could be wrong maybe. So say like you randomly step on an ant and you kill it. I don't think anybody's going to say you're blameworthy for that. 
but it might still be morally wrong. I don't know. So I want to separate those two um, instances. So I guess we're, we can't just be talking about, let me backtrack and make sure I said this right. It could be morally wrong to kill an insect, even in instances where it's not blameworthy. So I'm going to assume for this question that it's meant killing an insect in all instances, not just where it's um, uh, where it's intentional or unintentional. That's the word I was looking for. So say you accidentally step on an ant, you kill it in the same way that you um, spray wasps uh, to make sure that you, um, you know, that they don't bother you or sting you or whatever. I would say it's probably not morally wrong to kill an insect, but I don't know. I think I flip on this question a lot. Basically, I, I, I do think it's wrong. I don't know. I don't know. But basically, I think that like an insect, you can't, you can't think about an insect in the same way you think about a human being. I think there's a difference between the two. And so the way that we think about how we treat them is different too. And so I think that if we're, we're trying to justify killing or not killing an insect in the same way that we're thinking about, you know, is it wrong to kill a human just That's on different point. scales? That might that might seem a little obvious, but they're just different things. So is it morally wrong to kill an insect? Probably not. And I think that the reason for that is because, well, I think it probably depends on what the insect's doing, but I'm going to go broadly and say you're just killing it because it's bothering your, your way of life, right? Um, like your example of killing the wasp. And so I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> when I was a kid, this is a slight tangent, but when I was younger, I used to, if there was like a wasp that got in the house and I was going to go to sleep, I used to be like freaked out. <laughs> I used to think like while I was sleeping, like this wasp would like crawl into my nose and like um, sting me um, or just like sting me when I would be asleep or something. So I, if there was a wasp in the house, I would just, uh, at night, I would just be like worried about it. So I think, you know, it's kind of similar to that. Like if an insect is going to be interfering in your ability to flourish in whatever you're doing, I think it's probably not wrong to kill them. If you're just killing an insect because, you know, you want to just kill it, then it's then that's probably a different story. If you can get rid of the insect too, like that's probably a different story too. But I think if it's going to be like interfering with you, that's not what insects are supposed to do. So it's probably okay in that instance, I think. Yeah, this <laughs> is probably more complicated or probably less complicated than we're making it. Uh, but I, I agree with you. You know, you would think about, <laughs> right. So when we think about killing an insect, we do sort of assume a, a similar experience to ours. Same when we think about animals as well, mm -hmm. right? And so sure. we know clearly there's a, a spectrum of consciousness and a spectrum of lived experience you know, that humans have and even some very high-functioning animals have that, uh, that obviously a, an insect does not have. And so perhaps that changes the argument a little bit. There is, you know, arguments in terms of, again, kind of back to ecology can, in our yard, and we're very excited for spring. Like if you listen to past episodes, I talk about our garden sometimes. And we try <laughs> to be as non-invasive with chemicals as possible because we know that the web of associations between insects and plants and animals in our yard is is very important and so like when we have a massive aphid attack is that a right word attack aphid attack <laughs> we have a we have a large population of aphids suddenly spring up and they're eating all of our plants we go out and we buy ladybugs so that they can eat the aphids without us spraying the plants because we don't want to spray the plants because butterflies come along and and they take nectar from the flowers. And if the plants have poison on them, then, you know, that can get. And so from that standpoint, you know, obviously insects play an important part in the ecology of any region. And that's why at the outset I said, you know, there's a difference between talking about swatting a mosquito that's sucking your blood versus, you know, uh, perhaps eradicating millions of, of insects, you know, when we're talking about agriculture or something like that you know is there a different way to go about doing that but the argument is not necessarily like are we concerned about the life of the of the insect itself we're concerned about the ecology of the entire region and that's a different type of moral approach than just the insect itself like are we considering the life of this insect 
And the answer is still no <laughs> on that. So, hey, look, folks, if you got a if you got a bug that's pestering you, just just squash that thing. <laughs> but yeah. you know, yeah. you have say Buddhists who famously will not kill any insect, and they have justifications for that. I mean, there is something interesting, right, about the fact that matter comes together in a particular way to form a living thing. We talked the other episode about panpsychism. Some atoms arrange themselves in a way to be a rock, and then other atoms arrange themselves in a way that it, it is living. Uh, it creates a living thing. And there's some sacredness to that. And so I understand why, you know, from, a, from that particular perspective, why people would be hesitant to kill an insect. Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, if you're an insect, watch yourself around, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, you're going down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Ah, oh, okay, good deal. All right. Well, next question. Here we go. So this question is from Jack from Alabama. Jack asks, "Is it possible for philosophy?" and religion to coexist. Here we are, we're back to religion again. Uh, is it possible for philosophy yep. and religion to coexist? This is a great question. What do you think, Andrew? I think there's a tradition that a lot of people, in a lot of fields, I think there's a tradition around philosophy that has been forgotten about and the role that philosophy plays in that field. And I think it underlines that field, especially up higher and maybe some academic circles where it's a bit more pre prevalent. And I think that with religion, philosophy also plays an extremely important role that probably has been forgotten by a lot of people. Maybe that's just uh, because I'm Catholic. I don't know. I don't know how far that uh, idea would extend to other um, denominations and, and religions too. Uh, but Catholicism is so, it's such a, um, I don't want to say religion because I don't think it's a separate religion, but it's a denomination of philosophy. I think separating philosophy and religion is is kind of impossible. It's not something that might be evident to a lot of people, but I think it's wrapped up in itself. So yes, I do think uh, it's possible for philosophy and religion to coexist. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like the the question, that's a great question. The the question kind of presupposes that they can't. Yeah. And I get that perspective, which is a very Western perspective. By the way, a perspective that's only been around for the last mm, three, four hundred, maybe five hundred years, I suppose. But like widely, gosh, yeah. Um, so no, it's not that yeah. new of an idea. And and I get why that question exists, right? Because religion, a lot of religions make truth claims that are exclusive to that religion and excludes other belief systems. And so, you know, you have these dichotomies that are set up that like you either believe this or you don't believe that. And, you know, we also think of philosophy as being something that is very open minded uh, and and open to a great many questions. And if you're a religious adherent, you know, to question some of the tenets of your belief, especially if God exists, is, you know, heresy. So so I understand why the question exists, but I would like to propose that religion is philosophy, right? Like, like religion attempts to answer many philosophical questions related to existence. Why are we here? You know, and, and since we are here, what should we do about it? How should we act in relation to our fellow humans? Religions provide guidance and direction on the for these questions they, they provide answer to these questions but you know that then i get I, I get that you know so then we get into some areas where you know there's issues of what we call faith and where does the authority come from you know to answer these types of questions why is god an authority plato even addressed this in the euthyphro you know is, is something good because god says it's good or is something good because it's good so we have those questions of, of of authority, but then you know if you don't appeal to a god for authority, then you then you run into the issue of like, well, where does authority come from? You know, and so we have answers from 
people like existentialists who believe that we create our own meaning. Uh, you have answers from groups like Stoics who uh, believe that reason can provide answers to those questions, provide authority. So I, I, w- I would just like to say that religion is a part of philosophy and the exclusive claims that they make, I understand can be problematic from time to time. But yeah, I think religion is is very philosophical. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I mean, I don't want to keep carrying on, but also, and I know we pointed this out before, especially in the episode on the Tao Te Ching, that over in the East, uh, philosophy and religion are very much so merged, right? Over here in the West, we think of the you know philosophy over here in this one circle and relig- uh, religion over here in this other circle, or maybe science in this circle and religion over in this circle, and those circles really do not intersect. Whereas over in the East, when you think of something like Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Shintoism, all those uh, pe- people in the East generally do not have an issue with combining philosophy, science, and religion. Um, so, so it is is kind of a very, very sort of Western perspective as well. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed money. Ah, oh, geez, Andrew. You know, like you mentioned earlier in the intro when we were catching up on things, it's so cold outside. It really makes me long for the warm days of summer and I think of, of swimming. Andrew, do you like to swim? Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at, and so w- when you do, um, I mean, uh, have, you ever, have you ever gone swimming in your birthday suit? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, well, the phenomenologists out there would say you're definitely missing out on an experience. But hey, look <laughs> here, my friend. You know, this is where if you are in need of a swimsuit, you're like, gosh, can't find any of those uh, birthday suit beaches anywhere. <laughs> um, hey, this is where Albert Camus, Algerian swimwear company, can come in handy for you. That's right. Why wait for the tide? Dive right into the metaphor for the absurd and do it with style with the latest swimwear fashion from Camus Swimwear. Guys, Camus Swimmer is especially made with Mother Earth in mind. Camus Swimmer comes with, oh, so many styles, all made from environmentally friendly materials. Want to keep it classic? Check out this month's coastal-inspired board trunks. Looking for a little bit more pizzazz? Why not turn a few heads with a pair of form-fitting starfish briefs? Sounds breezy. How can I get a pair of these head-turning trunks? Do I have to live in Algeria? No. Camus Algerian Swimwear Company ships anywhere in the world. Oh, man. No opening up to the gentle indifference of the world there. Thank you, Camus Algerian Swimwear, for sponsoring us today. Money, 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 money. And, of course, we'd ask you, our awesome listeners, to sponsor us by quickly rating our podcast and leaving a review. It makes the technocrats happy. Causing Open Door Philosophy to pop up more frequently in search results and recommendations to other listeners. And don't forget to hit us up on Twitter at D underscore Parsonage, Open Door Philosophy on Instagram, and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com. We'd love to know what you think of the show and this episode. Now, back to the show. Uh, well, Andrew, you know, well, I mean, sorry. Uh, I no. know we're getting ready to go back into questions here. Very serious nature, but... Have you ever worn a, a speedo? I have not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Nor have I. Nor have I. You know, they're all the rage in Europe. <laughs> oh, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. But, uh, <laughs> we were I don't in... know if that's true. No, no, it's true. When we were in Italy, um, a couple, well, I don't know, that was probably seven summers ago now. Gosh. Uh, we were at a you know a little coastal town and, and it's a beautiful sunny day and, you know, just lots of dudes in speedos. Um <laughs> Of all body types and all ages, yeah, yeah. Who needs those those frumpy old trunks? I mean, geez. I'll, I'll <laughs> so never anyway, understand that. you know, uh, uh, I don't think you've talked about it, but but you're going to going to Italy in May. So y- either I need to you watch out. out. That's right. You got to figure out if you're going to join the crowd. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll be convinced. But I, I will definitely, uh, I if I do, I will definitely go to Albert Camus Algerian Swimwear Company. Oh, they'll hook you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
right. So our next question is, what is our favorite philosophical topic to debate others with? From And that question is from Veronica. Ah, oh, Veronica, thank you so much. Hmm. Debate. You know, if it had said discuss. <laughs> but debate, you know, mm-hmm. debate means you're... Uh, you like fighting over it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't like to, there's not a specific, I don't like to debate philosophical topics with people. I think um, it's kind of pointless. Yeah, I don't like to do it. But if people do bring up a topic, I think that I really like talking about, yeah, I really don't like it. <laughs> what What are some topics that uh, that come up where you just feel compelled that you must engage? I think probably the first one is I will always jump on the uh, objective versus subjective uh, beauty. I think that one's pretty fun, to be honest. Oh, that that beauty is relative? Yep, 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 yep. Another one that I do feel compelled to do is um, objective or subjective values. Is morality objective or subjective? But here's the thing. I'm never going to convince somebody, so and nobody's ever going to convince me, which sounds bad, but uh, in a debate, nobody's ever going to convince me. I'm never going to convince them, so that's why I don't really like it. <laughs> yeah, when when people debate, it's more so uh, as a means to defend their position and win, and that's important sometimes. Sometimes it's important to win debates on on topics that are important to our lives. But I don't really en- enjoy debating either. I enjoy conversations. I enjoy mm-hmm. discussions and dialogues. But debate for me means to engage in, in, in intellectual combat. And that's yep. not yep, yep. A, a joy for me. There are a couple things that I don't debate about. But if I hear come up, I just totally crush like I <laughs> just annihilate it before the conversation can get going. Uh, so there are a few pet peeves. Maybe this is what the question is asking. Do we have philosophical topics that are pet peeves? Uh, so for, so for me, uh, nihilism. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Which yeah. of course is a, is a thing that, that everyone has to grapple with at some point in their life. But you know, when you, people are like, Oh God, life's meaningless. Uh, everything's meaningless. There, there's no point in anything. You know, I'm not going to put up with that. <laughs> let's just let's just stop that right now and have a talk yeah. about uh, why life is meaningful. So, so nihilism, it's an important philosophical position and discussion to take seriously. But, you know, just in sort of like passing comments, you know, where someone's like, oh, life's meaningless or whatever. I'm like, no. Uh, the other, the other yeah. philosophical pet peeve is anything related to Ayn Rand, <laughs> and all my friends know this. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's garbage. So, Ayn Rand's philosophy is garbage. There, I've said it. I've said it. It should be taken seriously because some people take it seriously, but I don't think it a uh, a good approach to life and living. And it's it's. <laughs> It's garbage. So there we go. <laughs> I won't debate it. I'll just crush it. I think I, I said I said this, but I think like whenever someone's like, um, "Oh well, it's not it's not um it's not wrong in my perspective, but it might be okay in somebody else's." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, no, you you do not you do not actually believe this. You you might believe it to be like edgy or cool or to be like. I think it's like I don't want to say it's like virtue signaling, but I kind of think it is." And I don't think people do it like out of any intention or bad meaning or malice or whatever. Like I sure. think they're they're probably trying to be like very good people. But I I know they actually don't believe that because if it's like some awful position and you're not going to stick by the you're not going to stick by the idea that uh, you know I I don't I don't want to go too far. But like you know you're never going to defend the claim. Or very few people defend the claim. You know like oh it's not in my culture to. Um, Nobody's going to say like, okay, China killing uh, or, or genociding and, and putting Uyghurs in concentration camps is okay. It's their culture. No, nobody's going to say that. Maybe some people would say that, but those people are very few and far between. And they're um, wrong. So I just think, yeah, and they're wrong. And so 
like if you're going to if you're going to claim that's wrong in that situation then the entire like argument fails because there's obviously some objective measure of you know right and wrongness if if you can find one thing in that situation and i think it's very easy to so yeah sorry that's my little rant hey this one's just for you andrew oh and i get to read it don't i okay perfect hey this is from <laughs> travis in california thank you travis for writing in andrew do you pull the lever or not in the trolley car problem Yep, you pull the lever. You pull the lever, lever. but you don't push off. Yep, you don't. You pull the lever, but you don't push someone off the bridge. Okay, you have to unpack that for for all of us. Yeah, there's one. You know, we talk about a lot. You pull the lever, kills the one person instead of the five. There's one that's like, um, if you have to push somebody off of the bridge to stop the like the train in front of you know killing five people, um, I wouldn't do that. I think it's very that would be very alienating. I don't I don't know. I want to do that. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to push I I want to push somebody off a bridge to save five people. People who would say that they would, I want to do that. I want to do that. Why wouldn't you do that? You know, I think pushing someone off of a bridge would be very alienating and make my life probably it would have a lot of implications in my life and I think that that's going a bit too far. I think like pulling the lever, saving a lot of people is one thing, but I think like actively pushing somebody off um, is a little different. That's all I have to say. What do you What do you think? Uh, <laughs> well, for any first time listeners, Andrew has has a special place in his heart for what's called the trolley car problem. Yeah, and it's yeah, a it's a classic, sure. <laughs> it's a classic thought experiment introduced first by Philippa Foot, although she didn't call it the trolley car problem. But yeah, so you know you've got five people tied to one track and one person tied to another track, and there's a trolley car coming down. And it's gonna crush somebody, and you are standing there next to the lever, and you have to decide: do you pull the lever and divert it and let it hit five people, or do you uh, not pull the lever and uh, let it hit the one person. So, so you said pull the lever, Andrew. Yeah, you you pull the lever, kill the one person. But if that one person is like anybody who means anything to you, I think you save that person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what would I do? Um, I mean the the problem with the thought experiment is that there's not enough context. Uh, from a from a calculating standpoint, yes, one is less than five. <laughs> And maybe that's the point of the thought experiment. Well, one is less than five. So, you know, from a utilitarian standpoint, you save five and sacrifice the one. But for me, I mean, I would have to know who those people are. But then I would also want to know, like, why they're tied to a train track. But I guess another thing about the thought experiment, and maybe we don't think about this a whole uh, very often, is that if there really is a trolley car barreling down the the tracks, um, you're not going to have a lot of time to work through this problem. No, I mean that's the luxury of armchair philosophy, right? You just sit back and yeah. you're like, oh, let's think about these five people and you know all that sort of stuff. You know what 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 does your gut tell you? I agree. I think I think your gut. I don't know what your gut would say, but I'm assuming that I would. I'm assuming that the right thing to do is probably to pull it. And so that's since that's my gut. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. Simple as that. If I didn't know who the people were, I mean, I would let the trolley hit the one, the one person, and then I'd probably go kill myself because, like, I wouldn't be able to live with that decision. <laughs> well, you'd probably wake up from the dream and realize how stupid the dream was. <laughs> Maybe this should have been uh, your answer to uh, to our previous question. <laughs> what do you like to debate yeah, with prob- people <laughs> or not debate? Probably so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Just that's the other thing about this thought experiment, right? Like, when is this scenario going to take never, place in reality? Never. Never, and, never, 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 never. But I mean, I guess um, the I guess counter argument to that is like, yeah, you know, okay, so like black and white Mary, like when is that? scenario ever going to take place either i think the difference comes in between like okay one of these is i'll agree with you i'll say like they're both kind of 
they don't, they don't serve a purpose that might be great. But one of them is a like an epistemological question, which is kind of ha- those kind of have to be a little bit more abstract. Um, whereas this is like an ethical question. We don't need to do this. Well, you know, I think it's pro- it's fine. Just, I think it's just one of those things that's overused. Like it, it can serve its purpose, but it doesn't need to become a piece of pop culture. And I think that's my big big problem about it. It's just like, oh my gosh, it's it's eclipsed its usefulness. It's part of pop culture. <laughs> Well, I'm exhausted after that one. Hey, it's our last question. Last one. It is, what are humans inherently entitled to by Joshua? Oh, geez. I feel like we're burdened by these questions instead of (laughs) excited about them. The thing, the thing for like half of these is like, I I feel like I flip flop on these issues every like six months or so. So uh, I think you, I think for some of these, like, if, you, if, if we do the same time next year, it's going to be totally different answers. But anyway, what do you think? What do you think? What are humans entitled, inherently entitled to? And I think I'm going to have a very different answer to what you said. Uh, we very well might. Okay, yeah. so what are humans inherently entitled to? One title means you deserve that or you should have that. I mean entitled in the positive sense, not in the negative sense of like, unjustly demanding that you have something like you're an entitled person but uh but what are humans inherently entitled to uh my answer is nothing yep 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 <laughs> that's what i thought i thought you were going to say something different oh what did you think i was exactly gonna say what i think i don't know but, uh, but not that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we're in- inherently entitled to nothing which is not like a nihilist argument i want to i want to you know, make that point as well. And this is my like existentialist predilections creeping up here. But, uh, but in this case, we do create a great deal of our meaning when it comes to what we are entitled to as human beings. And when we say that, we probably mean that in relation to other human beings. Not like, are we entitled to grace from God or something like that, as yeah. opposed to something that we would call natural rights, which is an idea that sprang up in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, things like life, liberty, and all that good stuff. We we made that up, and we said that yep. that is something that we have. So I don't know. I don't want to keep talking. What, what about you? Where are you at on this one, Andrew? No, I, I, I definitely agree. Like, I think that we need to separate, like, okay, what is God or, or what is nature giving us? Like, and even we're not entitled to some of those things because we're just not really entitled creatures. But I think like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense for why, why are if someone's coming at this from a saying, yes, humans are entitled to X, you need to answer first a question of why are humans entitled to it? And I don't think there's really inherently entitled to it. Um, and there's really no good, I don't think there's any good like reason why, like what, who's, who's giving you this entitlement? Yeah. I think like, like let's take, let's take rights for instance. Am I entitled to the right to free speech? Probably not. Why would I first, but then let's think about it from just like how political communities form. Cause that's probably what a lot of people are thinking about this. I think political communities just form from a bunch of people coming together and establishing common things that they agree on. And some of those common things that they agree on are basically ethical principles. But underlining all of that, uh, the the big assumption to say like, okay, a right that we have, let's say someone says a right that all humans have is the right to be like respected or something, right? I think something that underlines that would be like, all humans, something that would necessarily have to underlie that in any other person who believes that humans are entitled to X would be that all humans are entitled to be recognized as humans. And I just don't think that's, well, I personally think that's true, but I don't think that's kind of given by nature. And I think we can just see that over the course of human history, people are not. Um, And I don't know where I'm taking this. So just cut this part out and just end it when i'm saying no (laughs) no i mean i think the train of thought there's 
good. Uh, you're right. When This is why we form political institutions or political communities or community just in general, right? That even the smallest community of some indigenous tribe somewhere has core values that they all agree on are good for the community. So in that way, yes, you know, we do have, we create these entities that we are, these uh, rights, I suppose, or values that we all adhere to. And those are important. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. It just doesn't mean there's some inherent rights that exist out there. And, and you know, when we use that word rights, that, that may not be what the listener was really thinking about when he asked this question. But and there, there's a difference between, I suppose, rights and maybe values. If you're thinking about it from a rights perspective, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I talk to know my problem with the word inherent. Whenever I hear it, it just sets me off. That's another one of those things that uh, I like to debate with others about. I think very few things are inherent to humans. So if we're saying like that rights or anything is created when humans come together as a political community, then it can't really be inherent because those are created after humans are created, right? So it's not something that's inherent to us. It's not something that we're in. It's not tied to us inherently if it's created after humans are created. If a political community is dissolved, then those like rights or whatever have to still exist. And I just don't think they would. Or, or not that they're they, that they, those rights would exist, but that you're still entitled to those rights. And I don't think that's that's not true. If, if the political community is not there, then what are you entitled to inherently? Yeah. And when you talk about rights, we also kind of think about rights in terms of it's something that an individual should have that someone else might be trying to take away from them, right? So with this question, you know, maybe we maybe we flip it a little bit and say like, you know, what are humans inherently entitled to? Let's make it more positive. It's like, well, maybe human beings are entitled to taking care of the earth. You know, like we're always worried about what something's trying to take from us. What is it that we can give that promotes good, the good life, right? And so like taking care of our environment is, uh, is something that perhaps we are entitled to as living creatures in that environment. All right, everybody, thanks for sending in your questions. That was a whole lot of fun getting to engage with your ideas and questions in that way. So now, as we do at the end of the episode this week, it is the Quote Corner. So let's head that way. Okay, welcome to the Quote Corner, everyone. So this week is a quote from, uh, not actually a philosopher, is a novelist that everyone will recognize, and that's John Steinbeck the author of books such as The Grapes of Wrath. And this week, as everyone knows, the war in Ukraine is happening. And so I thought this week we would discuss a quote related to warfare. So the quote is from John Steinbeck, all war is a symptom of man's failure as a thinking animal. I can hear some people saying, people who start wars probably have a justification for doing so. Yeah, I think that's true, but it's I think there's a difference between you doing something from a thought or from your reason um saying, yeah, this is a good idea, and I think there's a difference between that and just doing something from your impulses or passions. And so I think probably most war, I don't know about all, but probably a lot of wars just from people who have let those passions overcome their overcome their reasoning their egos their hopes their ambitions and they just really want to uh you know take more land or crown themselves emperor or eradicate a religion or anything like that and it's probably just you like listening to not listening to the smart part of yourself yeah and that smart part of yourself that you and I would think about in context of this quote is what we'd call the rational self. 
So this goes all the way back to, to ancient Greece, right? That the thing that separates us from really every other creature that exists is our rational faculty or the the amount of rational faculty that we have in comparison to uh, other forms of life. And so you would think that having the ability to reason, we would be able to avoid things such as war. And <laughs> you, know, you were like, oh, yes, the Greeks thought this. Well, holy cow, <laughs> the Greeks were just mired in war. Their entire history of ancient Greece is nothing but war. Their great classics are about war, the Iliad and the Odyssey. So, you know, maybe this uh, rational function is not as powerful as we think that it might be, but it seems like that it should be, right? And you're right, you know, every person or every uh, political entity that begins a war does come from, hopefully, the uh, idea that the war is just action. And uh, whether or not that's used as a, as a means or whether or not that's actually true, justifying warfare is, sorry, using reason is a way to justify warfare. I think, I think you're right. So what are you going to give this quote this week, Mr. Parsons? Um, war is, all war is a symptom of man's failure. I'm giving it four stars. I feel like there's uh, some things that could be questioned in this, but in general, the sentiment is right on. Yeah, I'll give it a 3.98, just just to throw it up. Okay, well, there it is, folks. Quote Corner, kind of a heavy one this week. Yeah. That's okay, philosophy is heavy sometimes. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to our listener questions. A special thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We really appreciate reading them. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And uh, as always, of course, thanks for listening. And please do pass along Open Door Philosophy to your friends. You can find more about the show episode resources at our website at opendoorphilosophy.com with also some books that we mentioned, although I don't think we mentioned any in this episode. But it's a Yeah, it's probably a no resources for this episode. Yeah. But, but yes, you can definitely catch all those other books that we've mentioned time to time and engage with us online at my twitter which is d underscore parsonage and our open door philosophy instagram we'd also once again like to thank kevin mcleod for the use of his free music go check him out he produces absolutely wonderful music as you can tell that's right it's the moral thing to do we'll see you next time everybody stay safe out there and remember when your life is in need of some philosophy doors always open